Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour. And today we have a brand new Ask Dr. E episode. So naturally, I'm sitting here across the one and only Michael Easley. How are you doing today, Good thing Dad? there's only one. <laughs> I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great. We're both COVID-free, praise God. Yeah. All this craziness. I know. We're doing okay. Yeah. We're making it. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to be fine. Yeah. feel sorry for families that have someone they know and love going through it, but most of us are going to be just fine in God's kindness. Yep. Thank God. Well, we have a bunch of really fun questions. We are going to ask a friend to help us on one of them. We're going to call another expert. Yes, because Dr. E needs help with some of these. <laughs> They're beyond my uh, pay grade. <laughs> but your very first question is submitted by yours truly. I want to know. I oh, was, you're going to own this, huh? Oh, yeah, I totally. I thought you were going to say someone else wants no, to know. No, 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 no. Okay. You know I have no qualms owning okay. anything. I was in a conversation recently. Now, you know, spanking your child is a huge I don't even want to say hot topic. It's like something that people don't talk about, at least my generation of parenting. I don't know if it was as divisive as an issue when you were first raising yes. Jesse and I. Okay. So I would assume that it's just even more so now. And so it's a whole thing. Like, do you spank your children? Do your friends spank? And all, all this stuff. And I was in a conversation recently with a friend and her mom was present and her mom looked straight at me and said, well, you know, the Bible says to spank your child. And I said, oh, it, it does. And she said, yes, spare the rod, spoil the child. That is clear. How did she put it? That is a clear command from the Bible that you are supposed to spank your children. And I said, interesting. Interesting. Our favorite neutral word. We just gave away our trade secret. Whenever we say interesting, that means we're not going to tell you. I don't know. It's I'm just, not going it's to It's a respond. neutral world. It can mean anything you want it to mean. That's interesting. May agree, may not That's agree. That's really interesting. People say, that was an interesting sermon. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> it was interesting. You weren't asleep? Maybe. Uh, so, okay. Dad, does the Bible say... To raise my child biblically under God's design, do I have to spank my children? Mm, maybe. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, first of all, let's talk about that idiom, spare the rod, spoil the child. That is not in the Bible. That's not in the King's English. So, a number of times in Proverbs, we have the term rod. For example, in Proverbs chapter 13, 4, he who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Chapter 14, verse 3, Proverbs, in the mouth of the foolish is a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will protect him. And there are others. Chapter 23, verse 13 might be the most appropriate. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Though you strike him with a rod, he will not die. So if we were to take those at surface value, it sounds like, you know, you should use corporal punishment on your child. Let's start on a couple things. Were, were you spanked? I mean, do you want me to publicly? <laughs> I'm asking yes, you straight I was, up. I was spanked, yes. We spanked Jesse. We spanked Devin. We spanked Sarah. Yeah, all four of us. You survived? I did. I'm alive. Okay. I was spanked yeah. by nuns and priests and my dad with a belt yep. and my mother with the back of her hand. Yep. I think your mother, I think she says she was never spanked because she was, you know, the youngest and she dodged 
yeah. you know, discipline. But let me just say, number one, this is not a new hot topic. It is a hot topic. When we were raising you guys 35 plus years ago, it was an issue and there were camps that didn't spank and did spank. We are going to have on the website two transcript links to our dear friends, Barbara and Dennis Rainey. And both of these addressed a biblical approach to childhood discipline. That was the broader title of this. Sure. And then one of them was just a Q&A on when to spank. So let's start out. When your mom and I were new parents, the question was, how old is a child when you spank them? And I can remember any parent that, I mean, I know your boys have never done this, but you're changing the diaper and they're arching their back. Oh, totally. Yeah. And they're fighting you yeah. and you're trying to do something and they're fighting back. Yeah. Do you pop them on the thigh? Do you give them a stern word and they continue to squirm? I mean, those are questions every parent deals with. When we adopted Jesse, I remember the social worker asking us, did we spank you? And I wasn't going to lie. I said yes. And that turned on all these yellow alarm bells. Next thing I know, we were meeting with the head of the adoption agency in a meeting that you cannot spank an adopted child. And I looked at her and I said, do you have children? She goes, yes. And I, it was a girl. Have you spanked her? No. And I said, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't. I just said, really? How did that work out? You know? Uh -huh. So obviously people can survive not being spanked and people can survive being spanked. Let's talk about some do's and don'ts. Number one, never do it in anger. Right. This is where a lot of the abuse happens is your child is tired, running on edge, aggravating you, pushing your buttons, and you just lose it and you backhand the child, you spank them, whatever, use a belt, use a spoon, whatever it is. And that, of course, is egregious. Every parent who spanks has spanked in anger. Sure. They've done it How and it, it's not? been wrong, yeah. right? So number one, you never do it in anger. Number two, we believed in using a third-party instrument, meaning a wooden spoon. And we kept that wooden spoon in a clay crock on the kitchen counter. Oh, I remember well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and your mom and I had different opinions about when and how. To me, if you were going to spank, you followed through with the spanking. You gave warnings. You say, okay, if you do this, you continue to do this, you will get a spanking. Yeah. You apologize, repent, you know, tell your sister you're sorry, whatever the case may be. Right. You continue to be disobedient, incalcitrant, angry, rebellious, then we're going to spank you. So then it was walk to the kitchen and get the spoon. Well, your mom discovered if she rattled the crock, yeah. that often got, you know, it was in a, a clay crock. If she rattled the crock, the kids would stop disobeying. To me, that was not carrying through proper discipline. So we had disagreements and discussions about that. And so there were a lot of times, of course, I wasn't home in those years. She was a stay-at-home raising children mom for many of years. And she just said that was easier. I got compliance. To me, if it was time to spank, then you went and got the spoon. Right. Now, to do it properly, you explain to the child why. You review whatever the rules are. I think we had three D's. It was disobedience, dishonesty, and... Danger? I'm just guessing. I mean... It might have been. Yeah, putting someone in danger. And those three warranted a spanking. I mean, we always spanked? No. But those were sort of the... I mean, just being smart-alecky, being whiny, right, whatever. Right, for right, every right. situation. Um, I mean, we, we were just talking to a young parent the other day. Well, and it, it's it's abusive. We were talking to a young parent the other day, and they were asking your mom, I mean, this very question. 
And uh, we sat down with both of them in their house because I was talking to the dad. He goes, I really wish my wife could hear this. And so, well, let's go sit down and talk about it. Long before the spanking, for example, this child is a whiner. This child whines about everything. And in this case, the mom wanted to spank, but the dad was reticent because it was his little baby girl. And I said, you know, we had a rule in our house. There's no whining in the kitchen. You want to whine? Go to your room. Yep. Go outside and yep. whine. Whine your heart out. Yep. Do not whine around your mom and dad. Yep. And that was a real simple thing. It didn't require spanking. didn't require yep. yelling. In fact, yelling just makes it worse. It's so funny because as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. But I couldn't have told you that. Yep. And yet we have a thing with Isaac. The second he starts whining or kind of throwing a fit, and sometimes he's just tired or hungry or whatever. Obviously. It's hard to be a toddler. But, I mean, we'll look at him and go, okay, if you want to act like that, if you want to whine, if you want to cry, you can do it. Just go to your room. And he, he just marches straight off to his room, <laughs> whines. He comes out, mommy, I have a new attitude. I'm like, great. <laughs> welcome. But anyway, I mean, it's just yeah. so funny because I probably just completely internalized that as a child and it came yep. straight out of me once I became There's a parent. No whining in the kitchen, no whining in the den, no whining around us. You can whine in your room. Yeah. And, and for most of us, don't we metaphorically need to go whine in our room? Totally. <laughs> you know, get yeah. away. So those things don't warrant spanking. Uh-uh. Spanking, you have to decide as a husband and wife, as a single parent, obviously you've got to come up with some parameters. But if you're a husband and wife, sit down. These are the things we spank for. And clearly communicate that to your child, even a young child. Yeah. You get spanked if you hurt your brother or sister. You get spanked right. if you disobey mommy. I mean, even though Isaac and Pax are you know, wonderful Angels. little boys, yeah, of course. they look at you at the eye and they do things to see what you're going to do. Oh, yeah. And so those are lines that, you know, a parent a couple needs to draw and say, if you do this, but you explain it to the child. And then when you spank, if you choose to spank, you take them in the room, you close the door, you talk to them about why they're being spanked depending on their age, have them explain back to you, I'm getting a spanking because, and then generally speaking, one or two pops on the back of the thigh with a wood spoon is about all it takes. Now, fast forward to a super rebellious, difficult, strong-willed child. You may have to use a little more sting in the spanking, or you may choose to use other types of discipline. Your mom tells the story when we used to teach parenting conferences, which we've repented and said we will never do it again. <laughs> we know nothing about parenting. But um, when we thought we knew something about parenting, we knew you were old enough to stop spanking because I forget what it was. Oh, yeah. You'd done something and you I were grounded. I rode my bike into the, the cul-de-sac. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't supposed to or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. off the curb in the street. Yeah. And we had a busy cul-de-sac. And your mom grounded you for whatever it was, the weekend from your bike or something. And you came to your mom and you said, mom, can I just get a spanking and get this over with? Yep. <laughs> and that's when she knew we hit, okay, Yahtzee, this yeah. was a better discipline yeah. than corporal swat on the back of the leg yeah. because it had more impact. Yeah. This is the consequence of your disobedience yeah. and you had put yourself in danger. Yep. So those are just some different ways. I was just pulling up to see how many states, and rather than give people information that may or may not be accurate, there are a number of states where it's illegal to spank kids. Hmm. So you are going to have to, as a parent, depending on where you're living, do some homework and make a decision. Now, when we adopted Devin and Sarah, we had to sign documentation that we would not spank. 
and we lived in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C., and I remember going to counsel, to legal counsel. I remember talking to some organizations I won't name, but that I respected, and I said, what do I do? We have spanked our two younger daughters, and they've survived, and it's been an effective tool when appropriate. And yes, we've overspanked, and yes, we've done it in anger, and yes, we've gone back and apologized for those kids. That said, what do I do? And we had all sorts of counsel, and I won't say who it was, but one person told me something, and they said, you know what I would do? I would sign the documentation in good faith that you're not going to spank those children. But if you get to a point where it's dangerous or they're lying or whatever, and you choose to spank, you go ahead and spank them, and you do it the same way you did your other kids, And then when and if the agency asks you, you tell the truth. Yes, I signed the document with the intent not to spank. Yes, I broke that because this child put his sister, her sister in danger. danger. They lied. They got someone else in trouble. And I chose to use that corporal punishment as a tool for discipline and then let, you know, so to speak, the government as an authority over you at that point, let them. You know what? No one ever asks us. Right. And we right. did spank, you know, all of our children at different times. Your mom and I didn't always agree on every time spanking took place. Your mom didn't spank very hard, so it didn't really matter anyway. They were more compliant with me because my spank, my pops were harder. And then there was also a time where it wasn't effective. Right. I can remember with one of y'all where it just didn't help. Right. It just made the matters worse. And so then you're looking for other tools in the discipline box. We, you know, there's no TV for a week. There's no interaction with kids. You don't ride your bike. I mean, yeah. whatever age appropriate thing, yeah. the thing that they most want, you take away from them. Yeah. And that's probably more effective. But I can tell you times, and I won't name the child, but one of you all, you know, you were out of control. You were angry. You were insufferable. You were whatever. And that spanking recalibrated. Yeah. It yeah. reset the clock. Yeah. And the child cried in their room for a period of time. They may have had a 10-minute timeout after the spanking. Yep. You reassured them, we love you. This behavior is not acceptable. Yep. You hurt your brother, your sister, whatever it may be. And you suffered consequences for that. And they would come out a different person. So I can say it's not a universal tool, not every you know right. hammer and a nail. But there are times a parent and a mom and a dad can work to get to, okay, this is a grounds for spanking. Yeah. In this culture, I probably wouldn't talk about it a lot. Right, right. Just because people are going to misrepresent it. People are going to go yeah. crazy. And some people do over spank. Some totally. people do. It's the only tool in the or toolbox. it's too harsh or yeah. too much or, yeah. yeah. Okay, so two quick follow-ups. So one, I think really to get to the heart of the matter, what I hear you saying is that the Bible does not say you have to spank your child There's in no order command to, that you have to raise to, him. Right. But there is a command that, or maybe it's not even a command, but it's you really do need to discipline your child to raise your child well. It is commanded to teach them God's word and God's Tra- law. Training, training and discipline child. certainly can involve, you know, discipline of a corporal punishment kind of thing, but that doesn't always mean hitting. Well, right. right so right. so discipline biblically is just like there needs to be consequences to yes. things that could be harmful to that child. You know, essentially sin is harmful. And so discipline is consequences to that sin. 
So, yes, let's just talk very briefly about these two words. So there's two different words in Hebrew for rod and staff, and sometimes they're interchangeable. Most likely, it's used as a weapon, the rod is, and when it, also a shepherding implement. And we talk about that rod and that staff, they comfort me from Psalm 23, 4, the King's English. And don't want to draw too hard and fast a line here, but one is more of a defensive weapon, and the other one was more of a pulling an animal Guiding from it. safety. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you got an out-of-line sheep, you might hook that sheep to get him or her back in line, that lamb back in line. The other word used for a staff has more of the idea of supporting something, and you think about someone leaning on that staff mm-hmm. biblically. And so, you know, you could take the fields of meaning about, you know, you're leaning on that as a discipline tool. But sum it up, I don't think it's wrong to spank a child. I think you need to be very careful, not only with just the laws, what you're doing to the person. You know, you're not beating them into submission. Right. You're not. And if one SWAT doesn't get their attention and you choose to use two or three or four to get their attention, you'll know when that child is responsive to a pop, to a SWAT. I would not use a belt. I would use a wooden spoon if you choose to do that because you can't put a lot of pressure on a spoon without breaking. Those little wooden spoons break real easily. And if you over spank with a wooden spoon, those spoons probably going to break before you're going to hurt the child. Don't do it anywhere but on the back of the thigh or on the cheek because you don't want to hurt them. You don't want to do damage to them. On the the booty cheek as opposed to the face cheek. Right. No, (laughs) thank you. Good clarification. I did want to clarify, yeah. And chances are it's going to leave a red spot. Yeah. If it bruises, you're spanking too hard. Yeah. Again, parents who have spanked or used belts or other things, yeah. you know, I just caution you that that's probably overkill in the sense that you're not accomplishing what you want. That's more a parent spanking in anger or setting things right or trying to straighten out this child. There are other tools besides beating your child or yeah. spanking your child, which is obviously wrong. It seems like. I mean, my two and a half years into parenting, which isn't really even two and a half years, right? You don't really start parenting until, I don't know, over one. I still am not parenting my second born. (laughs) It seems like you want to discipline as gently as possible that will give the desired outcome. It's kind of where I've landed. Like, (laughs) no, you don't like that? No, no, (laughs) don't don't like or dislike it. I'm just, I'm not as afraid of saying there are consequences in life. If you lie and cheat and steal at work, you might be fired. You might go to jail. Yeah. Those are heavy consequences. Sure. So if a pop on the back of the derriere right. gets your attention from lying, cheating, and stealing, yep. that's a lot less consequence sure. to learn a lesson that's, early in life. It is a more life. gentle comp. Yeah, right. If you- but if it hurts and stings and leaves a red welt and they cry and they wail... Another thing that's very interesting, and children are all different. If you spank a child in anger, that child wants nothing to do with you. If you explain to the child why, and they understand why, and you spank them, it's interesting how many of those children want to cuddle with you. Yep. Be held, be comforted. Right, after Uh the spanking. And uh, the third-party tool, the spoon, in this case as an illustration, is what you're using to administer, not your hand. Right. And lots of reasons for that. But at the end of the day, they know the spoon was what was used to administrate the punishment. And then later on, have a conversation about that. When things are good and it's breakfast time and everybody's happy and it comes up, you got a spanking for that the other day. Why did you get that spanking? Help them understand. And that, to me, is the gentler part of the training. And then going forward, you may find yourself very infrequently needing to reach for a spoon. Right. Because they understand, I don't want to go down that path. Right. 
and then always reward the right thing when they tell the truth. You'll remember this when you were little. We told all of you all, if you tell us the truth now, the punishment's going to be a lot less than if we find out later you lied or you blamed your sibling or whatever or you stole that thing. You tell us what you did. Yeah. Jesse was really good yeah. about fessing up afterwards. Yeah. She come back, I did this, I, and her conscience bothered her. You know, she felt out of fellowship with mom in particular. And so she wanted to make that right. And so then, you know, hopefully it's a very short season where you're going to reach for a spoon. Okay, final question on this slash a little pushback. Why spank at all? I mean, couldn't you argue I can discipline my child in a thousand other ways it feels like it's not even worth it to spank. I don't think it's a last resort. I think it is a tool, and I think used properly, it's very effective. You may not have to use that tool. You might have such a great relationship with your child. Compliant children more than likely don't need spankings. Compliant children withdraw relational withdrawal, losing their toys, losing their privileges, their tablet time, whatever it is that they love to do, is more effective than a sting on the back of the thigh. Some children who are strong-willed, who are defiant, who are mean, who, you know, you turn the other way and they bite their sibling. To me, that's a tool where spanking you should consider because the eye-for-eye, tooth-for-tooth, Lex Talionis idea of Scripture is that I want it to hurt the way it hurt that other person. Yep. And again, that doesn't mean you bite a kid when they bite you. I know parents right. that have actually done that, that. Oh, I've heard of it, yeah. But it would pop on the back of the leg to remind them. And if they don't cry, if it doesn't bring a remorse to them, then it's not an effective tool. It doesn't mean you right. beat them relentlessly, right. but you might need to pop a little harder or you might need to find a different tool. Yep. Well, let's move on to our next question. And we are going to call our friend Christopher Yuan to help us out with this. Thanks, Dr. Christopher Yuan, my good friend and partner in crime, and we're excited to have you back on the broadcast, my friend. Well, I am always excited to do anything with you, hang out with you, so thanks for inviting me back on. (laughs) Well, Christopher, we got a question written into Ask Dr. E, and I sent it to my dad, and he said, we need to get Christopher on the line for this. So we are calling in your expertise. Let me read this write-in for our listeners. According to this article in Christianity Today, polyamory is the next pastoral sexual frontier. My son and daughter-in-law are polyamorous. They have been married nine years and have two kids, ages eight and five. They each have significant others, and these individuals are part of their family unit. They spend time with the kids. They are there much of the time, including overnight. My daughter-in-law's parents, like me, have a huge issue with this lifestyle choice. If we host a family event, we do not include the extras. We've also let them know that we choose not to interface with these people at events hosted by others, as we can't see how to do that without condoning or appearing to condone this choice. While both my son and daughter-in-law were raised in Christian homes, neither claim belief in God currently. And by not claiming, I mean they are adamantly opposed to religion, specifically Christianity. Is there an action I should take? Should I bother with giving them biblical truths? What would be an argument against this from a secular viewpoint? Looking for a lifeline here. This article did little to educate or affirm truth, in my opinion. Please help. So Dr. E and Dr. Y 
take it away. <laughs> well, before I pitch this to Christopher, I want to say a couple things about Christianity Today. Without apology, without hesitation, I am so unhappy with CT at so many levels. And I don't want to go on, you know, just being unkind or bashing them. But I think they've lost their moorings quite a while ago. That doesn't mean wholesale. But the tone, the writing, the editorial content of this magazine has shifted significantly in the last few decades. And I don't know about, you know, Dr. Yuan may not have the same way of speaking of it, but I think they're doing a greater disservice by so many ways they're approaching issues. And this is one example that I would put front and center. Even the attempt the way they've couched this article is very disturbing to me. So that with you know, probably the worst thing I'm going to say about this article and the issue, I'm going to pitch this to Christopher because we're pushed into an area, and I don't know how you feel about this, but everything's the church's fault. Everything's what we do and don't do right when it comes to these issues. And that's what angers me is that it's like, wait a minute, there's a lot more going on in the life of the local church than just the LGBTQA and, oh, now polyamory issues and what's our fault and how we should embrace these issues. And so this gets me spun up, as you can tell by the tone of my voice. But just to kind of throw that out there is, you know, maybe that's the worst thing I'll say today, maybe. But let's then go to Christopher, and I'm going to have you take some of these questions one at a time and yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I would just say, Christopher, I mean, help this mom out. She and I wrote back and forth several times, actually. And she yeah. she wants advice. Like, how does she deal with her precious son whom she loves? Well, first of all, that's why I so appreciate you, Dr. Easley. Just you never pull any punches. You don't mince your words. I don't have to sit around listening to you and just trying to guess what you think. So I love your clarity. <laughs> I, I don't have to, you know, just, oh, is, is this what Dr. Easley thinks? You know, and I have to say, I'm in full agreement with you about not just this article, but kind of the direction that the magazine has been going. But I'm so glad, Hannah, you had this opportunity to engage with this mother. I'm not sure if it's the next frontier. It's definitely something that we will be seeing more and more. I mean, obviously, transgenderism is already, I don't think it's something that we're talking about that's coming. It's here. It's on our doorstep. It's in our living room. It's our house. It's our, you yeah. know, it's the couch that we're sitting on. And of course, all the people who said, you know, talking about us who are so backwards to say that same-sex marriage is a slippery slope to polyamory. Here we go. I mean, it was, you know, just 2015 and now it's 2020 polyamory is here, you know? So, I mean, the same way, it's not on our doorstep, it's in the home, you know, it's in our carpet, it's in our tiles, it's, it's everywhere. So, but with that said, I do want to, I hope that the mother's listening now and, or you might be that mother that didn't write in, but you're thinking, this is my story. This is what I'm dealing with, with my daughter, with my son. And there's so many connections with this mother's story. This mother, we don't know her name, but this mother X. There are many parents that are out there that are wrestling with this because if there is no standard for what marriage truly is, which is one man, one woman, then why not? So it's a difficult thing. And there's such a connection between you know, this mother and many of the parents that we deal with specifically in the ministry that I have with my parents, my mom and dad, where we speak on this issue of 
homosexuality and same-sex relationships. So all these parents who are grieving because their child, and oftentimes raised in a Christian home under biblical values, walked away from their faith and are now in a same-sex relationship. So very similar to this, where the parents are thinking, what do I do? You know, we're having Thanksgiving and does my daughter, you know, she wants to bring her lesbian partner. What do we do? And kids even nowadays with adoption or artificial insemination, et cetera, or it could be a son. So it's very similar. And I just get similar questions like this. So I want to affirm what this mother is realizing that polyamory, and I think, you know, polyamory is a behavior. Polyamory describes a form of relationship, sexual and romantic relationship that they have. It is against the will of God. So that is correct. Christopher, to back up just for a second, I think by Mm -hmm. the context, most people probably got a clue of what polyamory is, but just, yeah, just to (laughs) give it up front, what is polyamory? I I, I get so, I lose that. I forget, you know, (laughs) this is my world that I live in and swimming and I throw these words out. They're like, doesn't everyone know? And so I forget that. Yeah. Polyamory, poly meaning many, amory or amorous is from meaning love. So, you know, a literal translation would be many loves. But as we know, it's not, you know, because I could say, well, I love a lot of people. I love my parents. I love you guys. I love, you know, my best friend. But again, it's distorting the meaning of love to almost only mean sexual or romantic or even like a marriage type of relationship. Um, So polyamorous means uh, people who have what I used to call it 20 years ago when I was not living as a Christian at all, as an openly gay man, I call it an open relationship where they would both agree to having relationships with other people. And the only agreement was that it would not be secretive. So they would tell the other person, but sometimes, for example, in these situations, it would be committed. So they would be what we call a thruple. So you hear these terms like that, a thruple, not a couple, but a thruple. So it would be three, either two men and one woman or two women, one man. Looks like in this situation from this mother, it's four. So is that God's will? Of course not. But we want to communicate to our children that the biggest problem actually is not polyamory. Is it a problem? Of course it is. But it's not the ultimate problem. The ultimate problem is rejection of Jesus Christ, rejection of God, and not following him. So I would suggest to this mother, though, yes, this is a problem, I would communicate to our children what we want more than anything else is that they would follow Jesus. Plain and simple. I mean, how in the world was I able to walk away from same-sex relationships? It was not based upon my own efforts or my own desire to be good or buckling down, white-knuckling it. It was first and foremost fully surrendering myself to the Lord Jesus Christ, putting my faith in Him, and by that, the Holy Spirit abiding in me, And through that, empowering me by God's grace to say no to my flesh. And so that I want to make really clear to this mother and also that these parents, that this mother communicate clearly that though this is a concern, polyamory or same-sex relationships, that's not our ultimate concern. Because let's just say this son and his wife, they cut off these relationships. Well, if they're not following Christ they're still lost. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So just like a daughter, if she's dating her girlfriend and she all of a sudden decides to date a boy, 
and they even get married. If she does not know Christ, if she does not fully surrender herself to Christ, she's still lost. So we want to make that first and foremost, and it's through that relationship that we're able to go and sin no more. So this would mean to communicate that clearly to the son, have them over, him and his wife, and be very intentional about communicating the gospel you know, even through dinner, you know, I love my friend Rosario Butterfield, her gift is hospitality, and she's always opening up her home. And dinner is not just dinner, it's after dinner, they, you know, when they clear away the plates, and they pass around the Bibles, and they pass around, you know, she sings the Psalms, and so she'll pass around the Psalter, and they'll sing, and they'll read scripture. And these are unbelievers, but who know that Rosaria and her husband, uh, who's a pastor, that's what they do. But it's done in a loving, you know, non-confrontational way. And so I think this is a good opportunity for ourselves to reconsider. If someone came over to our house for lunch, for dinner, or lived with us for a day, would they know that I love Jesus? You know, and I want to maybe even make it not just a day, but a weekday. So in other words, not Sunday, but you know, during the week, a regular day, if they were able to spend time with us, would it be apparent that we are living the gospel before we preach the gospel? Do we preach the gospel? Of course we do, but we have to live it first. So that's what I would say first is I would look for every opportunity. I don't think it's helpful to have the extras around, but if by chance we do meet them, because I mean, I think, you know, when we have these family events, and if these aren't people, I mean, it sounds like they're just in and out of these people's lives, not actually living with them. I don't see why I would invite them. Sure. But let's just say for some reason you go over to their house or something. You know, I want to make sure that I'm not hitting people over the head with a Bible, but I'm just exuding Jesus. And like the light of Christ can be really evident, you know, through just my regular life. So I really want them to see that. Let's presume that she's done this to, you know, the best of her ability, that she's communicated this. And you know how families are. It's hard to keep your emotions in curl. I mean, you heard me get spun up about this ET article. It's hard, you know, when we feel passionately about something. And so let's just say she's done it well, maybe not perfectly. And let's go forward because this is where, you know, we had friends, Christopher, several years back and her father divorced her mother and was living with another man and announced years later that they were moving to a state where this was before Obergefeld, where same-sex relationships were more acceptable. So they relocate their lives. And he announces to his daughter and son that he's going to marry this fellow and invites them to come to the wedding. And Mm -hmm. so in our relational structure, this woman and her husband are talking to me about it. and, And we weren't telling them, don't go, or you must go. We were just processing. And Mm -hmm. there is no logic. It's all emotion. It's, Mm -hmm. you can communicate as clearly as you want. In this case, I don't believe in what you're doing is correct. I love you. I don't hate you. I disagree with your behavior. Your rationale and excuses are not right. You know that deep down and you can have those conversations, but I love you. So then you have the question, if I don't go to the wedding, yeah, I'm cutting off a relationship more than likely with my son or whatever it is, son and daughter-in-law or daughter and son-in-law. I'm cutting off a relationship with them. They're going to you know, compartmentalize me and be mad at me and say unkind things about me. 
or I try to somehow navigate this relationship with these boundaries. You can't come over with your polyamorous extras. When it comes to my grandchildren, I'm not going to dance around these. Words. I mean, it becomes so much layer. And this is where I get angry in the sense of we're trying to coddle sin yeah, in such a way so as not to, quote, hurt somebody's feelings when yeah. they're the ones that have made choices. And then we're not asked to be tolerant. We're asked to embrace. Right. We're not asked to be kind and civil. We're asked to endorse. Yeah. And that's where I get angry. It's like, why did this come to the Christian's lap? It's my problem. It's my fault. And in a loving way, I appreciate totally what you've said, loving, clearly explaining it. But you know as well as I do, more than likely their response is going to be, you're unkind, you're unloving, you don't understand. We love Jesus. We're following Christ. Well, Christ, you know. in this situation specifically, they are very anti-Christianity. But so I'm then, playing oh. through the notion. I mean, oh. the article in CT is that we're committed to Christ and <laughs> doing it. this yeah. still. And right. so the bifurcations of this are driving. Let's center it down. We've done the hospitality best we can. We've done the communication best we can. How does she now relate to her son and daughter-in-law and their extended family that they've designed yep. without being unkind, cruel, and not a Christian. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, that's think, where it gets down to, right? Yeah. I think that where exactly like you say, how people cannot separate, you know, where we, we love you, but by saying that this is sin, it's you don't love me. Where does that come from? I believe where this comes from, and this is why in Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, you know, my first or second chapter is on identity. It's on personhood. It's on our ontology, our essence. Who am I? And especially when it comes to homosexuality, when people say I am gay, they're not saying these are my feelings. These are the type of attractions that I have. This is what I do, or this is the type of relationship that I seek out. Never. You don't hear that anymore. What people say is, when I say I'm gay, I mean, this is who I am. And in the same way, and actually, even in the way the email from that you receive, Hannah, from this mother, I think she said, my son is polyamorous. Now, I mean, I think, and I don't know if that's what he says, but it's even in the way that we communicate it. When we use the verb is, or if it's plural, that they are, that's a being verb. You know, in linguistics, we call that a copulative verb. And it's almost the same thing as putting an equal sign there, which makes what we say after that equivalent to who we are. It's your essence. I mean, that's why God says, I am. I am who I am. That's a very powerful statement. I mean, of course, people can say, I'm happy, I'm, but we can differentiate because no one will say, that's who I am. You know, happiness is who I am. No one says that. No, they say, I am happy. That's describing me. Whereas when someone says, I am gay, they're not using that as a descriptive. They're using it as a word to say that that describes my essence, my personhood. I'm born that way. And so helping people to see this is, you know, you are in a polyamorous relationship. You are in a same-sex relationship. You may have feelings toward both sexes, or you may have feelings toward different people. So the term gay straight, the term polyamory, I want people to really understand that it does not describe people. It describes our feelings, 
or our actions. That's such an important thing for us first to understand that as Christians and then help our loved ones to see that as well. So a son who identifies as gay, a daughter who identifies as gay, or a son or daughter who is in a polyamorous relationship, helping them to see this is not who you are. You are, and just say their name, you know, you are Charlie, you are Sally, you are in a polyamorous relationship and explain to them, I'm not saying that I hate you, but your behavior, and there's a difference. As a parent, we all know, we love our children, though they may do stupid things, though they, you know, rebel. If you have a five-year-old child who's doing something naughty, we don't hate them because of their behavior. We're able to separate behavior from the person. And I think that's important for us to understand and then help to communicate to our loved ones that it's not out of the ordinary to be able to say, I don't agree with what you think or what you do, but that's not the same thing as through that disagreement by not loving you. And so it's seeing that's actually true tolerance, true tolerance, where we're able to love even in spite of our differences. And I think that's a powerful statement for a parent to tell their child. Actually, true love, true tolerance is being able to love people though we disagree. And I would even go as far to say, loving if we agree with everything is a very simplistic and is a very almost sophomoric, immature, childish way to love and a more mature way to love is being able to love people in spite of our differences. I think that's a powerful point. So let me ask you, let's come back to our dear woman who wrote this painful, hard question. You started out with a superb way of saying, you know, clearly articulating why, you know, you love them. This is how I understand, you know, scripture. These are my convictions. Let's play scenarios out. They don't react well. They get angry. They want nothing to do with them. So now we can't see our grandchildren anymore. Back to my tension how do you keep some kind of a relationship without endorsing what they're doing? And do you cut the whole thing off? Is that loving? I mean, I know there's not one answer, but give me some counsel on, you know, how we have this discussion. Yeah. So I would say, so for example, if this is like the first time that you have a child, adult child, or maybe even a young adult or a teenager child that comes to you says, I'm in a polyamorous relationship, or I am gay, I'm lesbian, I'm trans. I think in that initial meeting, because usually there's actually parents are often the last to know, unfortunately, there's a lot of anxiety on their part. I would just listen and say, you know, what does this mean? Tell me more. You know, this is the first time. And inside, most of the time, parents are shocked and they're grieved. I would also ask a really important question. How does your faith fit into this or does it at all? I think it's important to tell them, I love you, but let's continue this conversation later as well. And the reason why I think at that point, when usually children come to tell you, they're expecting us to come down hard or whatever. This is my preference. I think wait till the next conversation to tell them, you know, first of all, what I want more than anything else is that you would follow Christ and follow his beautiful commands. And this is not what is God's will. I would say that in the second conversation, usually, because that first conversation is usually tense. There's a lot of, I would listen more and say, you know, can I get back to you? You know, let me process this. And, you know, as opposed to doing it at that point, because 
there's a lot that people remember more on that first one. And sometimes as a parent, if you say, I love you, but oftentimes what you just said before that, but is forgotten. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. It's gone. yeah. So I would say, thank you so much for telling me, tell me more. How does your faith fit into this? This must have been hard, you know, kind of, I think that first conversation may be leaning more into the grace side. However, you know, saying, let's continue this conversation. Don't kind of give the sense that we're done. This is it. You know, let's talk about this. I want to sleep on this process. This, I'll pray about this. But the next time, and you know, don't come in kind of with your guns out, you know, just still soft, but Tim, you know, what I want more than anything else is that you surrender to Christ. But I do believe, you know, we do tell our loved one, this is not God's best, but more than anything else, it's not that I want you to stop being in a gay relationship. First and foremost, first and foremost is I want you to follow Christ, know Christ. That would be for this mother whose child does not know or has rejected Christ. But as you know, Dr. Easley, you bring up, there's going to be more and more situations where people, especially in same-sex relationships, where they say, no, I'm gay. And well, Pete Buttigieg, right? He's gay and He's in a same-sex relationship, and he believes that God blesses that. And that's going to become more and more. It's not going to be uncommon much anymore. Sometimes those are so much more difficult because that adds another layer of deception. I almost suggest that it's sometimes better to avoid talking about the different six passages because, unfortunately, our loved ones who have probably thought about this for a long time and has read a lot on it, are probably a bit more prepared to come back with the truths that we're saying from scripture and can catch us off guard just simply because we haven't studied. Now, if they spoke to Dr. Easley or me, they probably wouldn't be, but not everyone has studied it as much as we have. And so as parents, I think it's best, and I'm not saying don't talk about it, but you could talk about, well, what is the true gospel? And what you find oftentimes is, well, the gospel, you know, it's not really about saying that we're all sinners. You know, it's just talking about that we have to do good and bring good and, you know, bring God's shalom to the world, you know, whatever it is they want to say, kind of it's getting around, you know, the true truth that, you know, if we're going to really talk about shalom and peace, it's about being reconciled to God, not about, you know, this kind of social justice, which oftentimes has been confused. But again, I think it's recognizing that the overarching, when you give in in one part of God's truth, you're always going to be giving in in others, which will be much more apparent, and they won't be as prepared to be discussing about what is the truth of Scripture, or even talking about, well, what is true marriage, and where do you get this? Then let's open the Bible to Mark chapter 10, or Matthew 19, where Jesus clearly lays out that marriage is between one man and one woman. How do you understand that? And I think those would be good, but most of the time, parents, you know, that's not something that you want to do on Thanksgiving, but sometimes what you can do, uh, I have lots of siblings who say, you know, my brother is gay and he's, and he says he's Christian. You know, what would I do? He identifies as gay, but he thinks you can also be Christian and they've talked about it and they're getting nowhere. I think sometimes you can use some reverse psychology instead of saying, Hey, are you reading your Bible? Because I would almost gather most of the time not. They're reading more of like Matthew Vines or some of these gay activists more than anything else. But I would say use maybe reverse psychology. And, you know, when you're just talking to them, how's your day? And be like, you know, what have you been studying in scripture this week? You know, what has God been teaching you this month? And I bet most of the time they won't have an answer. But if you kind of keep in a positive way, bringing it up and at the end of your conversation, you know, say, let's pray. I really believe if a person 
gets more into the word of God, the Holy Spirit has more to work with in that individual. And I've seen in people who have believed this false gospel that as they truly get into the word of God, it transforms. I mean, that's what the word of God does, you know, as the Holy Spirit quickens that. A couple of things as I'm listening to you that my mind's kind of running on and and I need to hear this and I need to apply it as well is, you know, you've got your own emotional reaction to things, but this takes time. Mm, yes. This is not a one conversation thing. And they're way down the road. If they already have these relationships, they're way down the road, probably before they ever mentioned this to her or the in-laws. Secondly is because we only have so much emotional capacity, spiritual capacity with our own hurts and problems is, you know, I hate the phrase it's overused, but the borders and boundaries that you just say, look, I don't have the borders and boundaries right now to handle all this. I love you. Here are the three things that, you know, I'd love to see you. I want to see the grandkids, but we're not going to even get here. And then I think the other thing, and you know this as well as I do, I've yet to deal with a person who's in an affair, who's, you know, gone down the road, whatever they're on. They're not in the word. You can't live those lifestyles that adamantly and have a relationship with God. And if you do, it's, you know, something else. It's not a relationship with Christ and his word, not submission to his word. But almost for this particular woman, it's, you know, this is going to take a lot of time in your own life and in how you do it. The other thing, and this is cynic easily, this ain't going to last. Yeah. This polyamory thing is going to blow up with one of them at some point. Mm-hmm. And that bridge too far will be an interesting opportunity when that person decides, well, they're going to add an LGBT component to it. Maybe that's a bridge too far for this couple. Wait, we didn't talk about that, which right. the irony of that becomes very self-fulfilling and rich to say, you know, when was it that that became a boundary too far for you? Right. You know, so I don't know. It's just, I want to come back to the high level to say, for those of us who have a voice, you, me, others who have a voice to speak about truth in a kind way, but in a clear way, mm-hmm. not being hateful or mean, but also, as Rosara said, it's not loving if we don't call people to repentance. And that's a knife edge that I don't have in every situation. I don't know when to push one side or the other. <laughs> I just don't. But I think we tend to cower away. We tend not to bring it up we tend to say, oh, everybody's doing it. And uh, that is as egregious as living in sin, is it not? That's right. That's right. Yeah, we should never try to shrink away from God's truth. And even when people bring it up, but I think, you know, we don't have to fall into their trap. People want us to fall into their traps and they want us to get angry. So don't get angry. You know, speak God's truth. Are you talking to me? <laughs> no, I'm speaking to the right. <laughs> yeah, you are. It's okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm speaking to because I mean, don't kids know how to push parent buttons? Oh, I mean, I, yeah. that's they're the master of that because they've known probably they know how to push parents' button more than anyone else because they've known their parents more than anyone else. So these kids are masters at doing that. So parents, what parents need to do is resist that. You guys know this that little picture book, uh, Love You Forever. Yes, yeah, we love you know it. that. Yes. I didn't know what that was until after I became a Christian, wow. but my mother signed off every single card, Love You Forever. So when I was lost, when I was, oh my goodness, just totally wayward, she would send me cards 
postcards every two or three days. Just, it was continuous. You know, this is before texts, before emails. And she, I mean, she didn't know, you know, how to, maybe there were emails back then, but it was continuous and I hated it. Yep. So annoying. Another, you know, and my friends even knew that they would go get my mail and be like, Oh, another one from your mom. Where should I put it? I'm like, Oh, in my filing cabinet, you know, which was my garbage can. So I didn't like it, but you know what? It planted seeds. So later when I got home and, and even through my time in prison, she continued to send ours and love you forever. And I didn't know what that meant. Okay. Love you forever until I read the book. And I mean, I just, I think about just died when I <laughs> read that. <laughs> so powerful. And so parents just, I love you no matter what. I love you forever. And, you know, you can say I don't, but I'm going to do what I do. And that is love you. Whether you accept my love, that's another thing, but I love you. And that love is always going to be offered to you. And tell that to you, whether you accept it or not, that's not on me. And also whether you understand my love or not, I have no control over that, but I'm going to love you regardless. I think that's powerful. Do not allow them to, you know, yes, I think, you know, Dr. Easley and I, we spent the last, you know, several minutes talking about what we can say and how we can counter that. But sometimes I think parents, it's just okay just to say, this is what I know to be true. This is not God's will, but I love you no matter what. Just let that The thing I keep thinking, you're never going to argue anyone out of a homosexual lifestyle. You're never going to argue them out of polyamorous lifestyle. To quote Michael Easley, you're never going to argue them into the kingdom. I mean, only God's spirit, only Jesus Christ can change hearts and change our desire for sin to you know, transition for a desire for holiness. And so, I mean, I'm thinking about your story, Christopher, and while there were, you know, hundreds of little things, of course, that led you to the Lord, I think you would say at the end of the day, I mean, your mom prayed you into the kingdom. She didn't argue you into the kingdom. She prayed you into the kingdom. And, but that was, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit going after you. Yep. That's right. And I didn't know the extent. I knew she was praying for me, but I didn't know the extent until later. And it was so powerful. And it wasn't just praying. The first two, three hours of the day, she would be reading her Bible, studying and praying. She also fasted. God called her to just fast. So she committed to fast every single Monday for eight years for me. And then one time, just out of the blue, God was calling her to fast until he said, stop. She had no plan. And of course, she still drank water. It was after a while, after three days or something, then she decided to just juice, you know, so she juiced, so she, had a, she fasted her for 39 days. And on the 39th day, her fingers started cramping and her toes started cramping. And she felt like that was God saying, that's it's done. And so she finished. So 39 days, my dad always jokes. He's like, if that was me, I would have just you know, stuck it out to do 40 so I could say 40. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God, you know, said, no, it's 39. She had nothing to prove, did she? <laughs> she had nothing to prove, exactly. But, you know, are we fasting and praying for our kids? I mean, interceding. She always said she was so afraid that God would forget me. Mm. So she would go every single day and she prayed and she even wrote out some of her prayers and she just wanted to be consistent about, you know, interceding on my behalf. 
because she knew that she couldn't do anything. And it was, it had to be God. It had to be the Holy Spirit. And for those that don't know your story, she kept those post-its that yeah. she recorded, uh, correct me, uh, anything positive that happened, you know, Christopher didn't get mad at me today, whatever it was, yep. and stuck them all together. And I remember when you unrolled them, did she ever count them or was that too? Oh, it was over a hundred, but it was a list of blessings. Yeah. That she kept in the midst of her storm, you know, she's like, I've got, you know, she loved the hymn, count your blessings, name them one by one. And, and, she, and she did. Kept, and she did. Yeah. Well, yeah. if you haven't listened to Christopher Yuan's story, he's been on our show probably three or four times now. And so we'll make sure that those are linked in the show notes. And then for this sweet mom that wrote in, I just realized I'm going to send her, Christopher, you and your mom's first book that y'all wrote together, because I think that awesome. would just encourage her. So I just want to say to this woman, forgive my explosive anger and, <laughs> and righteous indignation, if I can call it that. I'm just so frustrated with what the Christian community doesn't do to help. And yeah. that's my big concern is thanks for writing a very transparent on your part to write and ask. And as Christopher said, you're not the only one asking this question. And unfortunately, this isn't going away. For my peer, those who are in leadership positions, who have a voice, who have a podcast, a blog, who preach, who teach, who speak, have courage. Please have courage. As I often say, you know, speak the truth in love and smile. You know, smile when you're, even when you're angry, smile about it and smile at the future. This is a crazy time in so many respects. But Christopher, we were talking to one of the professors we talked to. He said, prophets had to have courage. Mm. And I thought, what an obvious thing that I forget, you know, that these people were speaking against an entire culture, Nahum speaking to the enemy, if you will, that judgment was coming and there was no opportunity to repent. You had to have courage to do that. And I think we need courage. Fortunately, we're not persecuted in the same ways yet, but to have courage and smile and say, Christ loves you. Your identity is not in something you concoct. He loves you. He died for you. He died for your sins. And there is a path of redemption and he can change your heart. He can change your mind. He can change your inclinations to the point that you love him more than you love sin. That's a work of the spirit, not a work of you and me convincing somebody or the work of the flesh being more disciplined, right? Christopher Yuan, thank you, thank you, thank you, as always, for helping us on these questions. Oh, thank you so much for having me on again. All right, our next question comes from Jeremy. Hey, Dr. E, I have a question about the idea that God the Father turned his face away from Christ when he hung on the cross. Is that a biblical idea? And if so, where does it come from? My assumption is that it comes from Jesus quoting Psalm 22, but doesn't he do that because he is fulfilling its prophecy? I've seen entire theologies of quote unquote cosmic abandonment around this idea that Christ was separated from God while he was on the cross, but I just don't know where that claim is substantiated in scripture. Great, great question, Jeremy. I'm impressed. First, let's jump in and talk a little bit about the term face. It seems like a simple word, but it is very complex and manifold in meaning. It occurs over 2,100 times in the Old Testament. And to think about that is startling, but here's another nuance. It's always plural, except one time. So face is not just what we think about the flesh and muscle tissue that covers our you know, skeletal structure, but it represents 
features. It represents something unique to a person. And it's not just our identity, but it's an assortment of ideas that we communicate. Think about when you smile at your kid. Or if they're about to do something and you warn them, you might raise your eyebrows and turn your head. Or if they're hurt or sick, the way you look at them. So face in the Old Testament is a manifold word that means a lot of things. Just a couple of references, Jeremiah 5.3, when a disobedient person's face is called harder than a rock because they refuse to repent. In Proverbs 7.17, the immoral woman's face is brazen, meaning shameless. So anyway, we have a number of these nuances, and I just bring that up because when we talk about God's face, it's an interesting concept because we don't think of him as someone we can see, obviously. We can see Christ in a way, but we can't see the Father, right? So just sort of as an index. Some of the passages that are brought to mind, and again, we know these in general. We might not know the reference, but Exodus 19.21, the Lord spoke to Moses, go down, warn the people so that they will not break through to the Lord and gaze, and many of them perish. Exodus 3, 6, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, and he was afraid to look at God. And then Genesis 32, 30, we know the story of Jacob and Peniel. He said, I have seen God's face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So, we're getting this picture of God in the Old Testament, this manifold expression of his identity. Sometimes you can see him, sometimes you can't see him. We'll leave it there for now. When we come to the New Testament, we get a picture that we see Jesus as God and we see the Father. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So John the Gospel writer is saying Jesus Christ is the exegesis of God. In other words, when you look at Jesus, you're seeing God. John 6, 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except one who is from God. He has seen the Father. And there's a number of different nuances, but you get the drift. Now, let's get back to Jeremy's question. In the temple complex, in Second Chronicles chapter 6, we've got this remarkable record where it's been dedicated to the Lord. You remember David got all the, let's call them, building materials together. He was not allowed to build the temple, but Solomon, the son, was. And in Second Chronicles 6, we've got this incredible set of details about the beauty and grandeur of what it meant to worship God. And the term before the altar is what I want you to listen to. Second Chronicles 6.42 O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Some Bibles say before the altar, before the anointed, that's the term face. Don't turn your face away from what we're about to do. In Psalm 132.10, David writes, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. So not to get too deep in the weeds, but when we're reading about the face of God, we're also being pointed to 
the Davidic monarchy, the dynasty, the covenant promise that was all tied into this. When you come to worship the temple complex, you're doing this according to where I put my name. And the prayer is, don't turn your face away from us. All right. So in the Old Testament, we can't quite see God the way we would see a man face to face, but we're coming before him. We're coming to worship him before his face, if we will. Again, in Second Chronicles 30, verse 9, If you return to the Lord, your brothers and your sons will find compassion before those who led them captive and returned to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. So that face represents his graciousness, his compassion, his forgiveness, his covenant. We might say he welcomes and accepts us. Now, you noted in your question, Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. This is sometimes called the cry of dereliction. That he's on the cross, he's separated from God, and he became a curse for us. And so he says, you've forsaken me. Galatians 3, Paul picks up the same idea. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. It is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So all that to say, there's this dereliction. Christ feels abandoned. You've forsaken me. So what's actually going on on that cross? So to say it as simply as I can, while he's on the cross, God's wrath is poured out upon him for man's sin. And so we use the phrase, God turns his face away from Jesus because he can't, quote, watch, we'd say, what's happening to his own son. I came across a helpful link by my friend, Pastor Colin Smith. He pastors a church up in the Chicagoland area, and his ministry is called Unlocking the Bible, and it's called The Day God Turned His Face Away, and we'll put a link on the show notes if you want to look at this, but he makes a number of points. I'll just read three of them real quickly. Number one, Christ bore our sins on the cross, and then he lists 1 Peter 2.24, 2 Corinthians 5.21 and Isaiah 53.6, all which say Christ took our place, he was made sin for us, and God laid the iniquity of us all upon him. Secondly, Christ bore the punishment for our sins on the cross. And again, a number of references that we'll link on the show notes. And then he says, thirdly, Christ was completely alone in his suffering on the cross. The disciples had forsaken him, now Jesus enters even into a deeper isolation, forsaken by God. So in the grand scheme, when Christ is enduring the wrath because of our sins, we could say, and again, we don't find that verse in the Bible per se, God turns his face away, but that because of that, the wrath is poured out. Christ is alone in his suffering. He must endure that by himself. And as I've often commented, I don't think the crucifixion proper, the excruciation, Latin word crucifixion. I don't think the pain of the crucifix was what Jesus was so afraid of. What Jesus was sweating drops of blood over was he was going to be separated from his father enduring the wrath. And I think that separation was far more painful than the physicality of what he endured, which of course is inhumane and none of us could handle that. But 
that's about the best I can do. Great question, Jeremy. I think, you know, he did turn his face away in the sense that he could not look upon the wrath that he poured upon his son in your place and in mine to deal with our sins. Wow. Wow. Okay. Final question. Bennett wrote in and he basically wants a Michael Easley suggested reading list. He wondered if you had some kind of top 10. He noted you've got lots of different books you mention and things you recommend. And he's already downloaded Dr. Constable's notes, which you talk about a lot, but he didn't know if specifically commentaries or theological books or just give it to us. What would you say are Michael Easley's top 10? Every maturing believer <laughs> must I have read these asked books. asked this question so many times and I have such terrible answers, Hannah. <laughs> I've never done the 10 list. I can tell you books that I've gone back to and that are seminal. Number one, A.B. Bruce's Training of the Twelve, A.B. Bruce Training of the Twelve. It is an old book written in 1871. It's a very hard book to read. I will head you off. I have told people this in the past, and they take that as a challenge, and they get it, and they don't read it. It's online. It's public domain. You can just search A.B. Bruce Training of the Twelve. It's a book you nibble at. And let me just say, as a side sidebar, I picked about six of the smartest people I knew. This was many years ago back in Virginia. We met at 4 a.m. on Thursday mornings during the summer. And you know all these guys, Rob Schwartzwalder, Tom Joyce, Buddy Wood with the Lord now, Dan Williams, Andrew Fanning. And we met in my office, and we went for two hours, and it evaporated once we woke up. And we went through this book, and each guy took turns facilitating it, and it was perhaps one of the most enriching, spiritual, enriching, intellectual, growing, maturing things I've ever done in my life. Secondly, I would put up there any commentary by Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, and he's written a handful of commentaries. They're very short. Don't let the brevity fool you. What he says in one page, I could not write given a year. He can distill things synthetically. He's written on a little commentaries on the Psalms, on Proverbs, on wisdom literature, a few articles here and there. And it's a good thing you can go look for used books on a number of online sources and pick up some hardback copies of anything Derek Kidner has written. Obviously, Dr. Howard Hendricks was a mentor and a professor of mine. He's written three or four books that stand out. The first one is Living by the Book. And that is essentially a how-to-study-the-Bible textbook. And there's a companion workbook that goes along with it. It's not like read a chapter, do a workbook chapter. They don't work quite that way in concert. You can read the text and then work on the workbook. The thing I love about the workbook that his son Bill Hendricks has put together is it will teach you how to study the Bible simply by doing the exercises. So you read the Living by the Book text, and then he'll have, a okay, spend 20 minutes on this exercise today. And then he'll give you verses to read, observations to make, and it's a fill-in-the-blank book. And it's what I call paint-by-numbers, learning how to study the Bible. It's very attainable. Husbands and wives can do it together. Grab three or four couple friends, do it together. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say it will change your life. It will change your life the way you look at the Bible, give you confidence in how to read the Bible. Third, I would add anything by D. Edmund Hebert. And again, he's probably has, I'm going to say a dozen, maybe 10 commentaries out there. And he is also with the Lord. 
but Dr. Hebert has an extraordinary way of taking all the complexities of critical commentaries and writing them in such a way that it's attainable for the masses. So uh, anything Dr. Hebert has written. In the apologetic realm, of course, there are great, you know, like Ravi Zacharias, that's a diet some people have a hard time reading. But Ron Rhodes, Dr. Ron Rhodes, is also a dear friend. And anything Ron writes is worth owning. And he has a ministry called Reasoning from the Scriptures. It has a website there. He's written, I'm going to guess, north of 30, 40 books. But his books are easily digestible. So if you want to know about what happens when we die, differences between certain religions and denominations, Ron Rhodes is your go-to for real accessible apologetics that aren't too hard on our brain cells. And let me say, of course, with online technology, you don't have to buy books anymore, but you do need a Bible and an exhaustive concordance that goes along with that Bible. So for example, if you use the New American Standard, you need a New American Standard Bible concordance. If you use the NIV, you need an NIV concordance. Again, all these tools are online now, so if you prefer that, it's super easy. But the reason is if you're looking up a word in the ESV, which is steadfast love, you want to know how often that occurs. You're not going to find that if you have the, quote, different concordance. So you want a concordance that goes along with the translation that you prefer. And it's good to have several of those if you want to be a serious Bible student, but a good concordance. And then I would say what I call a single volume or a small volume theology handbook. I love Paul N's, the Moody Handbook of Theology. There are any number of good ones. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is a big, big text that might be a little intimidating, but a single volume theology is helpful for if you want to study something like, well, how do I understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You're not going to find that by just doing a Bible study. You're going to need something theologically to help you along. Another one in that category was a very simple one. It's Basic Theology by Charles Ryrie. These fall in the category of a single volume or two-volume theology handbook. And there are many good ones out there, but I like Inns, I like Ryrie, I like Grudem. I also like one by a guy named Floyd Barackman. I've got a section on my shelf. Elwell's and Walter Elwell. These are all similar books. You don't have to buy all of them, but one of those, a single volume theology. And then along the same line, a one or two volume commentary on the whole Bible. And that would be the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was produced by Dallas Seminary professors. And then Moody has come out with a single volume commentary on the whole Bible. And again, those are just good resources to grab when you want to look at you know, a synthetic view. And then last but not least, a book I've mentioned many, many times is Talk Through the Bible. And that's by Ken Boa and Bruce Wilkinson. That is a synthetic book of every book of the Bible. It gives you a paragraph, a chart. Uh, contribution, key verses, a bit about the background. And actually, I have one more book. Uh, <laughs> You're going to make it to 10. The, the Handbook to not. Prayer by Ken Boa. I have three prayer books that I use. Handbook to Prayer is number one, The Valley of Vision, number two, edited by Arthur Bennett. Those books are, and I'll just leave it at those two. Those are two books on prayer that every Christian would benefit from. My wife, Cindy, and I have used both 
Valley of Vision and Handbook to Prayer for years, and we love, love them because they help us grow in our prayer language so that we're not redundant and repetitive. Let me get some bonus ones out of you, like just first things that come to your mind, marriage books, books on marriage that you really love. Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. What about parenting books? Parenting with Love and Logic by Foster Klein and Jim Fay. Just a common sense book. And then I would also add Meg Meeker's books, Strong Daughters, Strong Fathers, Boys Will Be Boys, Let Them Be. Can't go wrong with Meg. What about biographies that in particular really impacted you? That's so hard because it's the one I'm currently reading, you know. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I would say two that I really cherish is a biography on Luther called Man Between God and the Devil by Heiko Oberman. Extraordinary read. Again, it's going to take some time to read through. And then I'm currently reading Augustine's Confessions. And as I've told a lot of friends, I read it in seminary, but I can't prove it. So I'm rereading it and it's rocking my world. I will also pitch The Great Courses is a online company, is a source for lectures. And I've in recent years stumbled across a man named Philip Carey. Dr. Carey has a number of courses. His courses on Luther and on Augustine and on the history of Christian thought are extraordinary. And if you go on great courses, you can watch for sales. They have sales all the time. Really great resources. You can listen to them on your phone, in your car, on your tablet, on your computer, wherever. All right. Love it. It gives people a place to start. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks to everyone who has emailed in. Please, please, please keep them coming. Email us, call us. The info will be in the show notes below wherever you listen to this podcast. We appreciate you guys and hope you are staying safe and healthy. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.